listeners, thank you so much for being here today and welcome back to another episode of In a Dark, Dark Room. I'm of course your host Abby and in this podcast I cover all things creep. So I am now back from my UK and Berlin trip as I mentioned in my Dinky Dark a couple of weeks ago I think it was and I'm ready to get back, stuck back in. So this week's episode is perhaps my first ever cold case, well longly unsolved case I've covered I believe. I can't think of any others I've covered and honestly I think these are really interesting to do. I find cases and events that happened in like the 60s and 70s and 80s that are being solved now I find it really really interesting. I just I can't imagine what it would feel like to work in this case and to pour your time and energy into into these cases and then years and years later getting like a little ping there's been a match I know that's definitely not how it works I know that it's not as easy as just putting something in a database and that it's matching all the time I know a lot of time and energy go into these things but I just can't imagine what it must be like to finally get that break and I just it's very very interesting to me so I wanted to cover my first ever one So with that, let's get into this week's case. So this week's case is that of Tanya Van Koylenborg and Jay Cook. I'm really sorry if I'm mispronouncing that name, Tanya's name, sorry. I did find about five different pronunciations for it on the internet. Some were Koylenborg, some were Koylenborg, some were Koylenborg. So Tanya Van Koylenberg and Jay Cook were a young couple, both from Vancouver Island in Canada. So Tanya and Jay, as I said, they were a couple and they were considerably young in both their ages and also in the length of time that they had been together. So Tanya was born in 1969, so she was actually only 18 at the time of this case. And Jay wasn't much older. He was born in 1966, so at the time of this case, he was 20 years old. They were both young and they'd only been together for around six months after they got together in high school. So young in age and also young in terms of their relationship. Tanya and Jay both had quite similar personalities. They've both been described as very gentle and loyal, but it seems that Jay was perhaps a little bit more serious about the relationship with Tanya than she was about Jay. Tanya was very free-spirited. She dreamt of a career as a vet. She wanted just a little bit more for herself to get out there, travel a lot, And she was very determined, she had a lot of aspirations, she was very hopeful of what she could achieve and she seemed quite set on doing that. She wanted to be, you know, a kick-ass career woman, which in the 80s at the time of this case wasn't as maybe common as it is now. So I really admire her courage and determination in that time to be a boss bitch. But Jay, however, was a little bit more content with the quiet life. He didn't seem to have as much ambition as Tanya and he was seemingly happy enough with their relationship and just being with Tanya forever and working for his dad's company out of school. He was quite quite happy with his life, just kind of chilling out and he didn't have these enormous life goals that Tanya had, but he had Tanya and for him that seemed to be enough. But as I said, Tanya and Jay were, they were both happy and at this time they did like and love each other. So their relationship was strong for the time being. On the 18th of November in 1987, both Tanya and Jay decided to 
jump on a trip to Seattle. So, so this was actually a work-related trip because Jay's dad ran his own heating business and Jay worked for him, as I mentioned. So they were going to pick up some parts. I believe it was a furnace, a heating furnace for Jay's dad. And it was actually a bit of a win-win situation for Tanya and Jay. Tanya and Jay, they were going to take a little trip over the border and they were going to pick up the parts, spend the evening overnight in the van, go back to the hometown the next day and just kind of make a little bit of a trip out of it. So they weren't going to be in a hotel or accommodation. They were taking, he had this big Ford van, 70s van, I believe, and they were just going to hang out and sleep in the van, have a little road trip, just those two, which is something that you really value, you know, alone time together, just to kind of be an adult relationship, especially when you both live with your parents. So that's what these two were doing. They were taking advantage of the situation and they were going to spend some quality time together and see a few sites as well. So back to the 18th of November, the pair begin their journey to Seattle in Washington. Now, Tanya was very into traveling and she had actually just come back from a trip to Europe. I couldn't get the details of her trip to Europe. I believe she definitely went to London at least. I'm not sure if she traveled around Europe with her friend or if they just went to London and back. But I know that she went to Europe, London specifically, and she loved it there. She loved experiencing another culture. She was really inspired to travel and see more things when she got home, as I'm sure we all are when we get home off our holidays. So because of this, the pair decided to take a different route to Seattle, they took a more scenic route from Vancouver Island. So they drove to their nearest city, Victoria, and from there they got a ferry to Port Angeles, which is in Washington. So they left at about 4pm in the afternoon, and remember this was in November, so it was already quite dark, and over there it's very, very, very cold. I'm pretty sure their winter starts in like September. So by this point, it was already quite dark and quite cold. So after that, they then drove to their second ferry drop-off point, which was in Bremerton in Washington, and this took them around one and a half to two hours. As I said, they were looking for the more scenic route, and this drive took them just past the Olympic National Park in Washington. So it's very clear that Tanya and Jay's priority was not time or convenience, which was fair. You know, they were responsible, so they knew they could get it done, but they really wanted to make the most of this trip. And Jay was really prioritizing Tanya seeing a lot of things because I think that she had a bit of wanderlust when she got back and he wanted to give that to her, you know, provide her with a new sight to see and a fun road trip. So on this trip, they had stopped a couple of times, they got some petrol, took some pictures on Tanya's camera, asked for directions, you know, bits and bobs, and all seemed well in terms of the journey and the time that they had together and the time that they had to go pick up this this furnace for Jay's dad. So Tanya and Jay arrived in Bremerton to get their second ferry just after 10pm and they were seen getting ready to board the ferry over to Seattle. And this was the last known time that anyone saw Tanya and Jay alive. The next morning on the 19th of November, the morning rolls around and there's no sign of Tanya and Jay anywhere. The person that they were due to pick up the heating parts from waited around for hours and hours with absolutely no communication or any sign of either of them. The hours ended up ticking on into the afternoon and the parents were growing a little concerned as the supplier had confirmed that they hadn't arrived yet but neither Tanya or Jay were getting in touch with anyone or their parents or anyone else to confirm what the delay was, how long the delay would be and any extra information that gave any idea as to their whereabouts or what they were actually up to. No one could get a hold of them at all. Obviously, it's a little bit different then. This was in the 80s, 87. So there was no mobile phones. Communication wasn't as 
<sighs> forthcoming, I believe, as obviously I wasn't alive, but it wasn't as, you know, we didn't have mobile phones and it wasn't as easy to just text someone being like, oh God, the traffic was really bad. I'll probably probably be about an hour late. So it wasn't too unusual, but I think the parents were just a little concerned as they hadn't heard anything at all. The only person they were hearing from was the the guy with the parts, the furnace that was waiting for them. So understandably, a panic was kind of setting in, but it wasn't too bad at this point. But when the time for Tanya and Jay to return home came, that's when the real panic started to set in for their families. Tanya was particularly close to her family. She always found a way to keep in touch with them by giving them quick rings from like a phone booth or whatever she could. And it was very unlike either of them to be what people may be considering at this point is irresponsible. You know, if they're if you're one of their parents and they've driven off for the weekend to America from Canada and they've got a van, they've been a little bit irresponsible. They've not gotten the heating furnace. They're not communicating with anyone. But this was very unlike both Tanya and Jay. They were both very trustworthy, very reliable. And even when Tanya told her parents that she was going to be spending, you know, overnight traveling to Seattle with Jay, they had absolutely no concerns at all because they were both very, very trustworthy, safe kids. They never really stepped out of line before. So this was very, very, very unusual for both Tanya and Jay. So Tanya's parents took the first step to begin with some form of investigation. So they first called Jay's parents and they asked them if they had heard anything from either of them. And this was actually really sadly the first time that Jay and Tanya's parents had ever spoken, which is so sad considering the nature of the call and the circumstances that they were talking under. It's it's really, really sad. But when Jay's family revealed that they had also not heard from their child, both parents got pretty scared pretty quick. So Jay's family up until this point had been easily trying to explain the fear away as honestly you probably would. Jay was a little bit older and he was a little more independent. You know, he had a job for his dad. He was trusted to go with a van and go to Seattle to pick up this part. He didn't, he wasn't as likely, sorry, to regularly check in with his parents. And it was a lot easier for them to just be like, oh, he'll be home. No need to worry about him. Like, Jay's very trustworthy. It'll be okay. Which I think you honestly would do as a parent. It's a lot more rational to try and explain the fear away than to be like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. So when Tanya's parents called and said, Tanya's not home, we've not heard from her, which is very unusual. That's when Jay's parents considered something much more sinister had gone on. So the parents left it for the 19th of November, again, just being like, right, I've spoken to them. I'm aware that they're not, they're not talking to anyone. They're not communicating. Let's give it another day. But when neither of the couple had returned home or came into any contact by the 20th of November, it was then that they reported Tanya and Jay as missing. Both parents were obviously requesting a full-blown investigation and alert be sent out. But as we know, the police don't really like to do what they feel isn't necessary for the police force to do. So in the police's eyes, there was no foul play, no evidence of a dangerous situation. And these were what they were considering as two young kids who were in a relationship, on the road together, and they just brushed it off as runaways, of course. So the police actually refused to even consider Jay and Tanya missing until three days had passed. So at this point, it was only really one and a half to two days from when they had last been seen. But waiting another day must have been absolute torture for these parents. If you've got that gut feeling that something is wrong, 
but the police are saying we can't wait it's it i just i couldn't imagine and actually i read that in the US, or it might be specific states, there's actually no time frame to when you can report someone is missing. It just depends on your local police department and what they want to do. I also thought you had to wait 24 hours, but you don't apparently, which is interesting. So after talking with the police, Tanya's parents were honestly just like, fuck this. They took control of the investigation themselves. Now keep in mind that this is Canada and America we are covering. Two different countries and two very, 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 very large countries. I understand that, yes, it is specific areas within these countries, but even then, the sheer size of just land in both Canada and the US is honestly, it's just incomprehensible for me. As a European, as a Scottish person specifically, the idea of two young kids being out in just the land, specifically in the Pacific Northwest. It's so mountainous and forestry. I just cannot even begin to understand where you would begin with that. Where do you start looking? There's mountains and forests and wetland everywhere. It's it's dark, it's rainy, it's beautiful, but it's not exactly the worst place for a killer to hide a body. Let's just put it that way. So I can't even begin to imagine where to begin. And the parents of both Tanya and Jay were feeling pretty similar. Where do they begin trying to look for these two? Do they look where they know they travelled? Or do you look where you think they could have travelled to in that time frame and which direction? So Tanya's dad had specifically decided to begin with the route that he knew the kids had taken on their travels. So he either had a friend or he rented a helicopter aircraft and he decided to check their route that way to get a much larger, you know, cover a lot of land in a short amount of time and see if there's anything suspicious or anything that catches his eye on that search. But there was absolutely no luck with that. So instead, Tanya's dad headed to Seattle and plastered the city with missing persons posters, as well as some stops on the route that they had taken there. But it was just a few days after this, on November the 24th in 1987, that a body was discovered. The body of Tanya Van Koylenberg was found roughly 75 miles north of Seattle and about 140 miles north of Bremerton, where both Tanya and Jay were last seen. Tanya was found naked from the waist down. Her arms had been tied with cable ties. Her bra had been pushed up over her chest and she had been brutally raped. Tanya's cause of death was a gunshot wound to the back of her head, execution style. Now it's really important to note that Tanya had been found alone and she'd also been discovered near a really small town in Skagit County in Washington. So this town she was found near was so small that it has a current population of 150 people. It's that tiny, so when she was discovered by alone by a guy in a walk, this was very seriously alarming to the local police and residents of the town. But due to the amount of blood at the scene, they quickly concluded that Tanya hadn't been murdered there. She was instead moved there after she had been killed. So as I mentioned, there was no sign of Jay and there was no sign of the van that they had been travelling in. And even though Tanya had no idea on her at the scene, the police had heard and knew about a missing case nearby. So they contacted Tanya's family and confirmed that they were pretty sure that they had found the dead body of their 18 year old daughter. So Tanya's dad and brother identified her body and they confirmed that it was that of Tanya Van Koylenberg. 
Now, as you could imagine, with a scene like this and the fact that Tanya and Jay were traveling alone, police very quickly considered Jay a suspect. As you know, with these cases, there's a very high percentage of those who are murdered. They're actually killed by someone close to them, usually their spouse, partner, ex-lover. It's very rarely a complete stranger, unless it's like a serial killer. So where is her boyfriend? Where's Jay? Where's the boyfriend's van? Has he murdered his beloved girlfriend and ran off with his dad's van? A lot of questions were going around the police force, but when the police raised this to the families, both Jay and Tanya's family really forcefully shut this down immediately. There was no way it was in Jay to kill anything or anyone in such a brutal way and as I said he was described as gentle and someone who would do anything to help anyone. He would never do this to anyone especially not his girlfriend Tanya. So police took this quite seriously but they weren't going to completely rule him out and they turned their searches towards rapists, killers and kind of just people that they might have suspected were a little bit off in the surrounding areas. But on the 25th of November, roughly 12 miles from where Tanya's body had been discovered, her wallet, keys to the van, cable ties and surgical gloves were all discovered under a porch near a local tavern in a small town. One of the workers at this local tavern had actually found Tanya's wallet on the 21st of November, just three days after they had last been seen. But he kept it in lost property. But once the word spread about the discovery of the body, this tavern employee quickly realised that this was pretty important evidence. So the police were called, went out there and they collected all the evidence that I've just listed. But once they'd completed their collection of evidence and gotten their witness statements, etc., they left the tavern and were due to make their way home. When one of the officers noticed in a parking lot a van. And once they took a closer look at this van, they confirmed that it was in fact the missing van of Jay Cook's dad. So they towed this van away and they got a proper look inside, and it was there that they found a very, very disturbing scene. The van itself was completely trashed and it was covered in blood. The blood found in the van belonged to both Tanya and Jay. So with that, the police were pretty sure that Jay was also a victim of this crime and definitely not the perpetrator like they had originally been suspicious of. But there was still no body for Jay Cook inside this van. In this van, police also found a few DNA samples, including a full palm handprint on the back window of the van and a few other samples belonging to both Tanya and Jay, as well as some others. But police weren't too occupied with the samples because they knew the killer had worn gloves as they had discovered them at the scene of Tanya's belongings. And this was also a work van. There were probably going to be a few different people in and out of the van, but they took samples anyway and none of them matched any criminals or people in their database and this also oh my god I just realized I think I totally forgot to say but when they found Tanya's body like I said she had been raped and they were able to find semen at her scene on her on her clothes everywhere else so when they put the DNA samples from the van the handprints and also the semen found at Tanya's scene there were absolutely no matches whatsoever Now in the van they had also found more cable ties, a ferry ticket that confirmed they had managed to get on the boat to Seattle or that someone had driven the van over onto that ferry. They found Tanya's underwear, 
a used tampon that had been thrown to the back of the van, which allowed police to pinpoint that Tanya was most likely alive when she was raped by the killer and that the rape had most likely taken place inside of the van as the rapist had probably pulled out Tanya's tampon and thrown it to the back of the van in order to assault her. (sighs) That detail when I first read that was really, really, really horrible. Like it's such an intimate detail about Tanya and it's just, it's just, that got me, that detail got me. So as I mentioned, Jay was a suspect for a little while before these discoveries, but as we know, both of the families were very certain that Jay was completely innocent and honestly, they were all fearfully waiting for Jay's body to turn up as well and that is exactly what happened. On the 26th of November, just one day after the van and Tanya's belongings were found, the body of Jay Cook was found under a bridge roughly 60 miles from where Tanya's body was discovered. When police were called to the scene, it was clear that the scene of Jay's murder was just as brutal as Tanya's. Jay had been found with string, like twine, like rough string, and a dog collar wrapped around his neck. He had a packet of cigarettes and also tissues stuffed down his throat. He was covered in bruises and cuts and he had been really brutally beaten with rocks and also strangled. Jay had also been bound with cable ties, the same cable ties that they found in the van and at the scene of Tanya, and he'd been covered with a baby blue blanket to hide his body. Jay's cause of death was ruled as asphyxiation, and they found that it took him roughly six minutes to suffocate to death, so his death was very long and torturous and cold. It was also believed that Jay was murdered first as the van was found a little closer to his body and in their eyes it made more sense as the killer was probably looking to get Jay out of the way so he could be left alone to assault and beat and murder Tanya with nobody potentially stopping him. But after all these discoveries, there was still a huge gap because police did not have a single suspect or even an inkling as to who could commit such a horrible, brutal crime. But who could also have the freedom to travel as far as they did to cover their tracks, drop off evidence, which police believed was a bit of a taunt, by the way. They think the killer had dropped off the gloves to let police know that they were prepared. And it was also clear to police that whoever did this had intentionally set out to murder somebody. They had string, cable ties, ammunition, a gun, gloves, everything you could possibly need to successfully torture and murder someone. This person had come prepared, but even with all of this, they still had absolutely nothing to go off. They had semen, DNA, but there was no match and they had some odd prints, but again, no match. So where where do you go from there? So police from there started theorising and they first looked at the possibility that this may have been someone familiar with the prison system. Remember, this was in the 80s, so there wasn't a huge amount of true crime documentaries and podcasts like there are today. We all know, you and I, a lot of information about crimes and investigations and DNA, all the knowledge that would honestly be quite powerful to us in this type of situation. But that kind of knowledge wasn't 
is common then and DNA testing had really only taken off about a year prior to this crime and these murders had also taken place in smaller areas within Washington state so it was going to be a little bit more difficult for the police in that sense. Now during this time like I said mobile phones weren't a thing, CCTV wasn't as widespread, everything that could basically be helpful in this case wasn't readily available so they figured that the perpetrator knew had a different kind of knowledge and knew to wear gloves knew how to cover their tracks, knew to separate the bodies and discard evidence. So this person had to have some knowledge here. And interestingly, right near where Jay's body was found, there was a prison. So with a body being dumped near a prison and all of this criminal knowledge, police looked into the possibility of the killer being an ex-con. However, it never really went anywhere because they didn't actually have anything to go off with that either so it was just it was just a theory but a bit of a dead end so investigators then theorized that the killer maybe worked somewhere that tanya and jay had stopped as on their way to the second ferry they had stopped a lot i mentioned that they went and got petrol some snacks took some pictures asked for directions so they made contact with a lot of different people perhaps their killer who saw an opportunity and took it Police thought that then maybe their killer was on one of the ferries, most likely the second one to Seattle, and that Jay and Tanya had perhaps offered their killer a lift into the city. But again, nothing really came of this because they just didn't have anything to go off. There was no CCTV, no witness statements, nothing. But police were pretty sure that this killer had committed these types of crimes before due to how prepared they were. And these are a couple of quotes that I actually found from different investigators on this case. I just want to share where their heads were at when this case was starting to go a bit cold. He leaves those gloves behind as a sign to the police that you needn't look for prints because I wore these gloves. And he has confidence that there's nothing that's going to connect him with these crimes. We think the way that Jay died was indicative of things that we've seen before inside the prison walls. And the things we found on Jay certainly raised a suspicion that the person or people who did this have been in the prison system before. Without telling you anything else, that's definitely a possibility. We don't know the killer's intentions when he first met these two. We feel that he was out to do some harm, and certainly to assault both Jay and Tanya. And from what we have found, I think we can safely say that he had set his sights on Tanya and Jay was in the way. They were friendly, young, on their first trip and I think easily fooled. An easy mark for the killer. I think it's safe to say that by the time they exited the ferry in downtown Seattle, they probably were in the company of the man that killed them. It would seem to me that it's logical that the person has committed crimes like this in the past and has been successful at them. And having been successful, I would certainly say that it's likely he'll continue to do them. So as we know, this case took place in November. So these poor families had to go through Thanksgiving and the festive period grieving their two missing children who had been so brutally, brutally murdered. And to make matters so much worse for these families, in December, very close to Christmas, both the victims' families received Christmas cards that had details of really graphic descriptions of the murders. Now, I can only find a couple of like half letters. They've obviously been, well, I would imagine that the ones that have explicit details 
to the case had been kept private. But these letters were believed to be from the killer taunting the families, but were quite frustratingly being sent from all over America. So there were stamps and postmarks from Seattle, LA, New York, and they were all being written by the same person. So I'm going to read you a part of one of the letters. Dear Mr. Cook, as someone who instinctively hates all Canadians, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to kill Jay and Tanya. Furthermore, I'll do it again. And you ain't never going to catch me. And thanks for the money. I laughed as I wolfed down the steak, etc. I've eaten and enjoyed since the fateful evening and morning of November 18th and 19th. Sorry it was one of yours, but I've waited to venge myself. And then after that, it just gets cut off because obviously he went into some detail about the crimes and the police didn't want that publicised because it would probably just cause more people to come out the woodwork and taunt the family even more because people like to do this. It's so bizarre to me. And they don't, the police didn't even think this was from the killer. You'd think it was from the killer, but apparently they ever, they rarely ever are. People are just really fucked up and love to torture people from a distance sometimes, which is so disgusting. Now, like I said, these letters were actually being sent to both families on pretty much every special occasion and holiday event for months after the murders. And like I said, they were being sent from all over the country, but police knew that they were most likely not from the killer, but had nothing to go off again. So they just had to like, they eventually died out and the police just had to let them, I guess. So that was pretty much it for a few months after this. The case went cold and it stayed that way for 23 years years. The case at this point was stone cold despite an episode of Unsolved Mysteries airing about it, gaining a lot of media attention, but still police had absolutely nothing solid to go off. It was in August of 2010 that police thought their big break had come. So there had been a news article written about the murders and it gained some traction. And from this article came an anonymous tip. So someone contacted the police claiming they knew who had written and sent those letters to the victims' families. Now, it was revealed to be a man, an older man, who lived in the surrounding area, Seattle and Washington. But not only that, this man also used to travel around the US a lot. Is this a big break? Maybe. But the police questioned him and he admitted yes. I wrote those letters all those years ago, but I never murdered anyone. Like I said, the police weren't 100% sure that the person writing those letters was the killer because people just like to do that. So they they were going into this a little bit sceptical anyway, but police ran some tests, asked him some questions, and it became clear that this man was in fact very mentally ill and was not capable of a murder like this. He was just capable of taunting the victim's families to gain some infamy, and they knew this man was definitely not going to kill anyone. And because this was in 2010 and not in 1987, they could DNA test him and the DNA samples from both Tanya's body and the van did not match the man who was writing these letters. So the big break turned out to be nothing and the case again went stone cold. Now, how this case gets solved is absolutely wild. So as we know, there was a semen sample found on Tanya at the scene. So this was matched against Jay's DNA and it was confirmed that it wasn't Jay, but we already kind of knew that. It wasn't Jay, but they believed that this semen definitely belonged to the killer. 
So DNA testing advanced rapidly after this case and there were a lot of times that this case was reopened for investigation, went cold, reopened, went cold, all by different detectives and investigators who wanted a pair of fresh eyes on it. So there were still fresh eyes being looked at this case occasionally. So the police were remembering about it and they had the DNA from who they believed was the killer. And the DNA information had been stored in like the National DNA Unsolved Crime Database. So they would regularly run the DNA to try and find a new match. Now it's easy to have the DNA of a killer, but it's finding the match to the DNA that proves to be the hardest part, obviously. So in 2018, there was a process that was beginning to gain popularity. And this was called snapshot DNA phenotyping. So this is taking DNA of someone and putting together a sketch, essentially, of what they would look like based off this DNA you have. How insane is that? So you can get, if you get a really small sample of your DNA, they can tell you what you kind of look like, including eye colour, hair colour, race, all sorts. It's absolutely insane. So what the investigators did with the DNA they had for this unsolved case, they released their images to the public for their possible suspect in April 2018. However, despite a lot of messages and tips, this didn't really bring anything forward, nor did it lead to a name or a definite suspect. Because these sketches are always quite vague looking unless someone's witnessed what they look like yeah you can put dna together but it is going to be just like eye color hair color you're not going to be able to be like oh this person has a big nose and thin lips i've just described myself there (laughs) that's so sad but like i said dna testing was like it was a million miles an hour at this point and police were not about to stop there they were very very determined to have this case solved So they had, even with a tiny little sample, they could do so much more today than they can in 1987. So there was a detective that joined this police force and he reopened the case. And this time he sent the DNA over to a different type of lab. This lab that he sent it over to was responsible for testing genetic genealogy. Now, what is genetic genealogy? Now, this is something I have just learned about. And it is absolutely fascinating. So genealogy, as you may know, is the ancestral history of a person, basically. So it's the account of a person via studying their families, ancestors, descendants. So a family tree, if you created a family tree, that would be genealogy. Your parents, grandparents, cousins, so on and so forth. So genetic genealogy is the use of DNA tests, i.e. DNA profiling and DNA testing, in combination with traditional genealogical methods to infer genetic relationships between individuals. You'll be able to tell there, that bit came off Google, not my, not my own mouth. So for example, you know those like DNA tests, those like 23andMe, and you, they send you a swab, you take a swab of like the inside of your cheek or whatever, you send it off, And you essentially, in return, get a full report of you. So like you're 80% Scottish and 10% English. And and it's from your swab, it's able to basically tell you who you are, DNA-wise anyway. So genetic genealogy became super useful in unsolved crimes. Now, for those familiar with the Golden State Killer, you will know that this is exactly how he was caught. 
Investigators of the Golden State Killers case put the DNA sample they had into this website called GED Match. So this website was able to identify 10 to 20 people who had the same great, great, great grandparents as the Golden State Killer. So then from there, a team of investigators worked very closely with a badass genealogist called Barbara Ray Venter and they constructed a large family tree using this DNA from the Golden State Killer they had. Now this family tree, from this family tree, sorry, they established two suspects. One was ruled out by a relative's DNA test, leaving just one suspect left. That was the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo. So now back to our cold case. So the investigators for the murders of Tanya and Jay had been had seen, sorry, the success that gene, genetic genealogy had given cold cases. So there was a few cases that were getting solved this way now. So they put their DNA sample into the same website, GED Match. And the investigator of this case worked closely with another genealogist named Cece Moore. And she was able to build a family tree from this sample of DNA. And again, they narrowed it down to just two suspects. I think they are able to narrow it down with it because of like time frames and like locations and things like that. So it's probably a little bit easier when you've got the full family tree to be like, okay, this person, this person, they were born here on this day. They were this age when these, these murders went on. So they narrowed it down to two suspects and they believed that these two suspects were related to each other by being second cousins. So what they had to do is they had to identify the point of relation between these two people and they also identified who one of the cousins were. As this cousin who was related to who we now know as the killer, she had actually already had her DNA in the system because she had won a contest with Ancestry.com in 2015. So they were actually, they already had access to her DNA and they were able to match her DNA. She was called Chelsea, by the way. They were able to match her DNA with a DNA sample they had and it was not a match, which left them with one person left from this DNA sample in this family tree. 31 years. 31 years this case had no answers, dead ends, an unfathomable amount of grief and torture. And all these years later, they were finally able to narrow it down to one person, all thanks to modern technology. Isn't that mental? Anyway, so this one suspect, so like I said, they had to find, so they had two suspects, two second cousins that they believed were cousins. And they had to find a point of relation between these two people. So you've got two separate families, second cousins, one's on one side of the family, one's on the other side of the family. So they had to find when those, that bloodline came together. So they found the point of the relation between these two cousins. So the point of relation was a man and a wife, a man and a husband, sorry. No, what am I saying? A man, a man, yeah, a man and women <laughs> had gotten married from these two sides of the family. And this man and woman had had four children. They found that this point of relation, this man and wife, why do I keep saying man and wife? Is that like a really outdated term? So when they found this point of relation, this man and woman had gotten married and had four kids. I hope I haven't lost you in all this science. I just didn't want to go too deep into the scientific investigation and explanation because even reading it was mind boggling. So I'm trying to keep it really simplified. So they had a family 
a man and a woman had gotten married, had four kids, and their suspect was the only son of this point of relation between these two cousins, okay? So they had this suspect who was the lone son at this point of relation between the second cousin, Chelsea, who had her DNA in the system, and this one suspect. Now, this suspect was called William Earl Talbot II, and he was a 55-year-old trucker who lived just up the road from where Jay Cook's body had been found. Now, they were very sure of their suspect, but they needed a confirmed sample of William Talbot's DNA so they could test it against their sample to get a confirmation. This guy was a recluse. He didn't do anything at all. So they followed him closely for a few days, but he was a hermit. His mum died in 2015 and he had pretty much cut himself off from his family and he didn't leave his house much. So it was proving to be a little bit difficult for the police and they were a bit unsure of how long it was going to take. But luckily, about a week later, William Talbot threw away one coffee cup and police swooped in, got his saliva, tested it and an arrest was made. But who is William Earl Talbot II? So William's early life is quite difficult to find any information on, but the police interviewed a few members of his family, including his dad and two of his sisters, who all confirmed that William was a very disturbed young boy who eventually grew into an angry, violent man. His younger sister said, Bill had a lot of anger issues. He kicked me a few times with boots on and I ended up having to call the police on him. He always felt like life owed him something. And William's dad had told the police that he and his wife had gotten some counselling for his sisters and William himself after William had a few violent outbursts and had actually sexually assaulted one of his sisters, but apparently nothing seemed to help. And as well as being violent towards his sisters, he was also violent towards animals and he had reportedly pushed one of his neighbour's cats down a well just to see what would happen. Now, his dad did eventually throw him out of the house when he was younger as he was quite done with his son's violent behaviour, which would probably only get worse with no help. So he ended up living on a trailer on his parents' property and was very alone and very, very angry. Now, in 1984, he did get arrested for assaulting his own sister, which he only got a $150 fine for, but he was no longer allowed near his family and on their property. And I've not actually put this in my notes, but I remember reading that he, the only person that he was really close to was his grandfather. And his grandfather died on the 24th of November in 1986. So I know that in a lot of cases, they usually say that this is an outburst where it might be an anniversary of something traumatic that they went through or something to remind them that the world does owe them something, that they're angry at everyone. So it was actually nearly a year to the day after the death of his William's grandfather that Tanya and Jay were brutally murdered by him. So there isn't a lot to say about him other than that, other than he was violent and angry, but we know that he is a violent, angry man. So they arrested William Earl Talbot and in May 2018, he was formally arrested and he, of course, pleaded not guilty. And the trial for both of the murders began in June 2019 and he again pleaded not guilty and his lawyer's defence, which 
honestly is their defence in a lot of cases, which is so annoying. But his lawyer's defence was that the semen found at the scene on Tanya was from consensual sexual intercourse. And William himself said that people were too focused on DNA evidence and weren't considering that there was no other evidence linking him to the crime besides that of his semen and the fact that he lived right next to where Jay's body was found. Like, DNA evidence is the one. It's circumstantial evidence that isn't. But he's like, where's the circumstantial evidence? You've only got, you've only got my DNA. Now, it was also revealed in court that the palm print found on Jay's dad's van that was on the back window was, in fact, a complete 100% match to William Talbot, another piece of concrete evidence linking him to this crime. But despite this, William absolutely insisted that there was no way he could have murdered Jay because of the lack of physical evidence. However, the court made it very clear, well, the prosecution, sorry, made it very clear that the cable ties found on Tanya's body and in the van matched the ones that were used on Jay's body. And there was also physical evidence on Tanya's body, so they were able to put William at both scenes of the crime with the cable ties detail and the physical evidence. They're just knocking him down one after the other with all of this evidence, but he's still saying he's obviously 100% guilty. Not guilty, sorry. And then, just to add to the pile of evidence against William, his family friend, Mike, who is pretty much the only person that William still had some form of a relationship with, Mike confirmed that he had actually seen Jay's dad's van outside of William's home in the days after the murder took place before he ditched it. So, there you go. But William absolutely insisted that he was not a violent person. He'd never raised his hands to anyone and that he rarely even gets angry. But as we know from the interviews with his family, this was simply not true. And also with the nature of this case, there's just no way that was true. Now, despite this evidence, William's lawyers insisted that yes, he was in contact and had consensual sex with Tanya, but you have got no way to prove that he murdered them. And honestly, it seemed like that could have been enough to sway the jury. It was technically true. He could have possibly just had consensual sex with Tanya and she and Jay were murdered later after a few days, which is what the lawyers were arguing. But the prosecution, obviously, yeah, I say it's technically true. Obviously, I don't think that's true, but it could be true or in a really messed up circumstance. Yes, that could be true. It's unlikely, but it could be. But the prosecution raised, and this was right at the end, just before closing statements, where the jury were kind of split. The prosecution raised the question of Tanya's underwear. Why wasn't she wearing any underwear? If you had sex with Tanya consensually, and you claim that she was murdered a few days later, and we didn't find anyone else's semen, so the killer pulled down her pants for no reason, why hadn't she put her underwear back on? This was in the Pacific Northwest, a very cold place at the end of November. It was freezing. Surely she would have gotten dressed in the few days after you guys had engaged in intercourse before this murderer murdered her, right? Now, William's lawyers couldn't really have an explanation for this. And this is what seemed to put that final nail in the coffin for William Talbot, as the jury found him guilty on two counts of aggravated first-degree murder and was sentenced to two sentences of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Unfortunately, this case does not end there. 
In December 2021, an appeals court overturned William's sentence due to a juror bias because apparently one of the jurors on the jury of this trial was a past victim of domestic abuse and was also a new mother. So she said that it's possible her mind was swayed because of her trauma and also because of her emotions as being a new mother and feeling protective over her child. So their argument was that the jury were more likely to find William guilty because of, well, the juror, sorry, was more likely to agree that William was guilty because of her trauma. So this sentence was actually successfully overturned and William argued that he was not given a fair trial with an impartial jury. Oh dear. And it looked like for a while that they were going to be going to second trial. But thankfully, in December of 2022, just a year ago, William's conviction was reinstated as the court pointed out that William's defence did have an opportunity to dismiss the juror in question, but they had not taken that opportunity. So this meant there was absolutely no legal grounds for William to have a second trial and he is still in prison serving his two life sentences for the murders of Tanya Van Koylenberg and Jay Cook. And that is the end of this case. I haven't read anything more about William or his time in prison, but he is in there and in the eyes of the law, justice has been served. And that's it. That's everything from me. So there's not really much to say after this case. I'd like to know your guys' opinions on it. Do you think that William Earl Talbot did it? I mean, he obviously did considering he was found everywhere all over that scene in the van. But what do you think about them arguing that he had consensual sex with Tanya and somebody murdered her a few days later despite her having no clothes on? I'd be really interested to know your opinions. But that's it. So thank you so much for being here. Remember to take a breather because this is still, of course, real life. But... That's it. That's it. I'm done. So I'll see you on Wednesday for another episode. And until then, stay safe, enjoy the spooks, and I will see you soon. Bye.